Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host for this show and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. You can visit portofharlem.net and from the menu, click Port of Harlem Talk Radio to hear this and past episodes. We're also available, available on about seven podcast platforms. Our guest today is photographer Chester Higgins. If you are like me, you have seen the images from uh, the New York Times and Essence Magazine to the Walters Gallery in Baltimore and the American Embassy in Nairobi, but you may have never heard his voice. Well, that may change for many of us as we talk to him about his eighth book, Sacred Now, which he completed after about 40, about four decades of going to uh, four decades of going to the Nile Valley. And of course, that's Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. So uh, welcome, Chester Higgins. Thank you very much, Wayne. So I'm so honored to be here. Okay, great. So let me start off by asking you, or at least stating that many of our readers and listeners are very familiar with the teachings of Doc Ben, Tony Broder, who lives in Metro DC, of course, and others. And I had to plug in, he is from Chicago. So I don't think the information you share will be shocking to, to them. But in my opinion, it's the images that come with your text that makes your work different from the others. Thank you. So let's start talking about the waking moment or the awakening moment. Uh, many of our readers and listeners probably have had their awakening moment. So, uh, and some of, of those who haven't had theirs will probably have theirs in the next 30 minutes. So, uh, let's start talking about the awakening moment. Let me share my awakening moment and then let's dive into yours. Firstly, okay. okay, firstly, mine was when I was hearing Doc Ben for the first time in Iowa and thinking the man was absolutely cuckoo. In particular, <laughs> I remember his speaking of the Nicene Conference of 325 AD as a place where they decided Jesus was born a virgin birth. And he said, and I sort of quote paraphrase, and they did not have a pelvic bone to prove it. He encouraged us to look, he, yeah, he encouraged us to look up those issues ourselves. I did. And I tell you, I haven't been the same since. So like <laughs> so many of us, your earliest experiences with Egypt were via the Bible, it's taught by Western dominated religions. So you too must have had your awakening moment. What was it? My awakening moment came uh, when I went to visit Egypt in 1973. It was uh, September of 1973. I went um, as, a, as a journalist uh, on a TWA press junket that uh, a friend of mine who was uh, Peter Bailey, who was an editor at Ebony Magazine. Yeah, he's and also he a friend a of Port Harlow. He's also a friend of Port Harlow. And, and had been the secretary to Malcolm X after he exactly. broke away from the Nation of Islam. So Peter said, Chester, come go with me to, on this trip, you know, uh, to Egypt. And I said, oh, I didn't know what to expect. I said, you know, fine. And I get there and I'm not prepared for what I see. Uh, to look at first of all the the, the monument of the of the pyramid from seven miles away, standing thirty five stories high on on the on the horizon, to going and looking into the museums and the temples, and it dawning upon me, wow, you know, these are black folks. I never heard about these this stories. You know, I never heard about, and what I have heard about these black people do not square with what I'm seeing. What I was raised up in the uh, same slave Bible that uh, that the uh, that the King James made to pacify African people, uh, the Egyptians came off as very bad, very bad people. 
uh, and growing up in America, you know, where we had taught everybody's histories except black people, I, this, was a, this was astounding. This was shocking even to see that here, instead of looking at pharaohs who supposedly were uh, very oppressive and evil to their people on their knees to their deities, here uh, the interaction between the pharaohs and deities in very warm embrace and everything is very spiritual and very respectful. Uh, I said, who are these people? Why didn't I know about them? And then it was, as the spirit would have it, my 10 week planned trip to, to Egypt got extended to six weeks because the Egyptian-Israeli war, October 73 war broke out. And I was stuck in Luxor and I came back into Cairo to try to get permission because I realized I was the only American journalist on that side of the war, trying to convince day to day going to, to Egyptian ministries, trying to convince them to let me go make photographs that I can send to New York and hopefully get published. None of that happened. But in the meantime, in the meantime, my being stranded in Egypt because of a war gave me more time to absorb more of what was around me. So a two week, 10 day trip became a six week trip and when I, came, when I got out of there and came back to the States, I started reading up on Egypt, ancient Egypt, buying all the books that I could on ancient Egypt, and gradually over the years maintaining this until I got to the point that I had to start buying rare books and find things that were no longer there. And then joining different organizations. And I then I came to hear about Dr. Ben. I had been a student of Dr. John Henry Clark. I would go to his house and sit in his basement library and hear him expound, not only about ancient Egypt, but about West Africa too, which I spent time. I spent my summers of 72 and 73 in Ghana and 74 in Senegal. So that we, he had this West African connection through Nkrumah uh, and, and, and Lincoln University, but he also had this knowledge about Egypt and he was such, a, uh, in, uh, such an incredible scholar that he could tell you uh, when he talked about something, uh, where you can find a book in his library, where in the library you can find it, what page you can find the passage he's talking about, and what paragraph you can talk about. So he was a great example as a, as a uh, researcher and scholar for me. And he was able to, to fire my imagination uh, about this, what I've been, what I looked at, what I saw in Egypt, and that encouraged it, led me to go back and forth, back and forth. However, I never took a tour to Egypt. I did my research during my year, and then I would go back. Uh, and um, I, I think uh, what I learned after my first time is going back in the summer, that was just a too hot period to go. And that was when most African-Americans would go because uh, they were academics. And this was uh, uh, when they, they had time off. But as a photographer, I realized that the best time to be in Egypt uh, is uh, actually between uh, October and March. And um, as you can see in my photographs, I learned that in the desert, that the best time to make photographs is from just at, from dawn to probably um, an hour and a half up to about 8.30, and then to shoot again in the afternoon, an hour and a half before sunset to sunset. I mean, before the sun sets. Uh, it was an incredible, so my learning of Egypt became a, a gut punch 
from seeing in person what the monumentalness and the awesomeness of what was left behind. And, you know, decades later realizing that as, as great as it is that's left behind, we're looking essentially at the caucus of a, of a culture that uh, survived and thrived for 5,000 years. And now um, I've been, I guess I've traveled to Egypt now over 22 times. And um, then um, I traveled also up and down the Nile, became interested in the Ethiopians as well in that same year. 73 was a very interesting year for me spiritually because in May, I was in Ethiopia for the Africa, uh, Organization of African Union, which is called now the AU. Uh, where I photographed Haile Selassie and other heads of state. And then a few months later, I found myself in Egypt. And those two things really sort of arrested my imagination and have been coming back to it, back uh, delving into that material uh, deeply and coming back to it almost every year. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, I think it's really fascinating too, just a part of, of you being caught by the war. So the war ended up being a good thing for you. It was a good thing for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you made me really think hard too when you spoke of the changing of the names in the Bible. I know uh, some continental Africans who feel a need to have a traditional name and a Christian name, which is often an English name. Yet I am learning the Islamic versions of names in the Bible, such as Musa, uh, which is Moses, and Yusuf being Joseph, and Yaqub being Joshua. What are your thoughts for people who use one version of a name over another as part of their, of their identification. They call themselves Musa to indicate they're Muslim versus Moses to indicate they are Christian. <clears throat> then in some cases having an additional African name coming from their particular ethnic group. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, I think it's, um, how do I say this? Um, now Valley identity is, is foundational and a lot of people try to come to it from different ways. Even if you come to it through the English, you're, you're, you're trying to identify with a Nile Valley Foundation. You know, but I tell people, there are no white people in the Bible. Then whatever their names were have been rebranded into English and Irish names, but there are no white people in the Bible. Someone just had a memo on Facebook like that today, but go ahead. <laughs> That's, that's, just that's, all right. that's all right. That's all right. But, but and as as we know, the white people essentially plagiarize the religious ideas, ideology, theology of African people who believed in nature, and then turn around and then demonize the very people they plagiarize. There is no concept, theological concept, that has not been expressed in the 2500 BCE wall, tomb walls of King Unas. He talks in those, in those walls, they talk about creation. They talk about faith. They talk about soul. They talk about spirit. They talk about moral compass. All of those concepts, there's nothing you can, there's no, and, and the end of God, amen, which is what everybody says in the Bible without understanding where it comes from, but realizing that no matter what words you say, God, Jesus, Moses, none of them have the power of the word amen. You know when you say amen that it's final, that it has the, the emphatic spiritual power that, uh, that is superior to anything else. But you don't know why you say it. 
you don't know where it comes from. And it's quite interesting, the power of that word reflects the earliest dialogue between our people and nature. So that in every Bible, every uh, um, Quran, every Torah, they all say this same word and none of them translate it. They don't know where it comes from, but they know it belongs. And they know that it's a kind of thing that is like a, a necklace, whatever pearls that they may be doing in their own ceremony and their rituals, nothing strings that pearl up and tie it together except the word amen. So I guess you're saying that that's one word that people don't translate uh, amen, but the rest of the words they do translate and they all, people basically trying to identify with Egypt by calling themselves either Moses or Musa. They don't even understand that they don't because they know instinctively that there's something there. They may not know why. They may not know the how of it, the why and the how of it, but it's something that's in our DNA that knows that the mother of spirit is Egypt, is ancient Egypt. Yeah, and they're, so all trying to, they're all trying to connect back to Egypt, but they may use different words to connect. Right. They, may, they, they may use the same, uh, the, the name is the same, but they may pronounce it differently to connect to Egypt, you're saying. Right. And we know that, you know, Egypt is not the name also of the people or the place. But, you know, there again, it's people trying to um, make a copy that works for them. But every copy that they have tried to make work for them, because you have to remember, 2500 BC, what was the culture in, in, uh, in Europe? It was tribalism. It was not even a civilization yet. And Egypt had been civilized already for several thousand years. So as this, and had been exporting their culture to other far places trying to civilize the rest of the world. So the rest of the European world gradually said, oh, wow, uh, we like those buildings that we call, that, we, we, that, uh, that have columns in front of it. We like those buildings where you make a temple to, because it makes sense that you call, you make a, you make a resonance, a celebratory chamber that's so, worth so we'll so we'll God's presence. So we'll copy that too, huh? <laughs> we copy all of that. We copy, and then they try to make their own religion after, after the Greeks trying to make their own religion while they occupied Egypt. But their religion became one that it seems like it was just, uh, instead of some sort of thing that was based on a balance of nature, became something that was based upon essentially uh, uh, hoodlums and, and, and wicked people who were obsessed with sexual fantasies. So it's, and then the English, you must remember, were enslaved by the Romans who also conquered Egypt. So it's, we get all of this history of everybody else, but nobody knows and wants to teach our history because our history is the mother of it all and, our, and nobody has reached the plateau that our history has reached. So it was important for those countries, especially England, all of the, slave, the countries that wanted to enslave us, it was very important for them to cut Egypt out of the understanding of Africa. It's not, it was not possible to enslave people and at the same time tell them they had a great history. So in order to pacify them, we had to, they had to come up with this narrative that says, well, you have no history. And oh, that other history that in Egypt that's really out there, we're not going to talk about that. What we're going to do is we're going to create a semantic roadblock for you. 
And we're going to give you in this Bible that these people are the worst people there are. Now, you know, you have no reason to question that unless you know better, unless you know the terrain of the history, unless you've been there and seen. And that's why my picture is so important, because I'm not trying to tell you like Dr. Ben or Dr. Clark told you. I'm trying to show you evidence that you can see for yourself. And that if you had to go find that evidence, you know where it is, what it looks like, and you can know the significance of it. Now, that took me five decades of work, mostly of research, of finding where I'm, I'm coming upon, a, you have to imagine, I'm coming upon a, a cerebral landscape that had necklaces all around, pearls all around, everything is strewn on the floor. Not only do I not know what pearls go with each other, but I don't know what period these different pearls fit. And this is what it took me decades to learn by studying Egyptology to knowing, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to what Dr. Ben is saying. I'm attracted to what uh, Tony is saying, what uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Clark is saying, but I have to, oh, but I'm, I'm a visual person where I need to, I want to show the proof of it as a scholar. I, guess, well, I think the best difference, the big difference in your book is that you actually see uh, the pictures and one of the things you showed uh you're visiting the pyramid of, of unis i think you pronounce it unis the king uh and it's home of and the people early. should look and, and tell people to google that word u-n-a-s i would suggest that too but it's home of the earliest known holy scriptures with texts on how to get to the afterlife when you saw those texts how did that affect you well you know the texts look we were like, I mean, for lack of a better word, it looked magical to you. You know, they mean something. You know, they're very significant. And I had to go find a book to tell me what it said. And as I began to read it, you know, it's different from how we expect to, uh, sacred text. Our sacred text is really a, a compilation of witness statements. The Egyptian sacred text is a compilation of how the uh, how we understand nature, how we fit into nature as a divine force, and how we try to replicate that divinity and that balance in nature. So it's a different kind of headset, and that takes a little to get used to. But then as you get beyond that and having an understanding of the Bible, or in the, it met, but especially the metaphors of the Bible, is how you begin to understand the Egyptian text because it's all symbolism and metaphors. And then you begin to look, so you, it's, that goes back and forth, the metaphors between what the Bible talks about and then trying to understand this. But you, what you get is you get a sense of ultimate respect for the sublime understanding and expression of oneness with nature and oneness with the divinity of nature. And that's about, just incredible. When we talk about the awakening, that was another one of those awakenings. So many awake, a, a, a mi not a minor, but a sub awakening. Uh, was yes. reading about it being two thousand years older than the Bible, and then looking at the forty-two commandments, or uh, the I think it's called Mat Mat or Maat. The, 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 yeah, the, in, the 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 declarations of innocence. Right, and, oh, and how oh, they're so similar to the Ten Commandments. And then uh, being told to go look at Acts 7.22 and saying, oh, yes, now I see the connection when Acts 7.22 says Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians as was mighty in words and deeds. And you look at those 42 and say, wow, they're so similar to the Ten Commandments. 
that was well because the ten, the ten commandments come from the egyptian because the egyptians were the first to establish a moral code of behavior the egyptians understood that we humans we have a lot of possibilities but we also have a lot of defects you know we don't really like each other number one we can cause a lot of problems with each other wars disagreements turns into wars and i think the egyptian priests took it upon themselves that how do we maintain divine balance in civil society and how do we replicate that from the heavens so then in order to do that how do we agree upon how do we come to agree upon uh, a common set of moral compass that we can all feel that we're safe with and that we're safe with each other and that is that help uh, give some predictability to our behavior that is not in the realm of disorder that yes. same that, that same that same uh, philosophy was translated into the Holy Bible where they took ten of those uh, declarations of innocence to make the Ten Commandments, and they put the other thirty two in the Book of Acts and different and distributed around the, the Bible. If you don't know that, it doesn't matter; it won't stick out to you. <clears throat> but if once you learn that. Then you begin to do what you just said. You begin to point out, oh, I see this, I see that. You know, <clears throat> the Holy Bible is a, uh, a holy scripture, is an African thing. We invented religion. Everybody came, we have hundreds, the Egyptians have hundreds of books, hundreds of books about theology and hundreds of chapters in those books. So obviously, when you learn, begin to learn those chapters, you realize that the editors who made what's called the Old Testament cherry-picked. Those who made the New Testament cherry-picked. Our people, even though the English tried to make a Bible that would pacify us and tell us in 64 passages that we should be okay with slavery and oppression, we cherry-picked too. Yes, we cherry picked the story of Moses because we felt that we wanted to be liberated from oppression. We felt worthy of this liberation from oppression. But no, we did not like the Ephesians parts that say, you know, honor and obey your master. So we, but we could, but our DNA, there was something in our DNA that says, okay, I know this is coming from me. I know this is makes sense. It makes sense in a spiritual sense not in a um, uh, uh, ideological sense. The ideology our people without knowing, they just didn't pay attention to, but the spirit knowingly they pay attention to. That's why our people are the only people who are really more, more um, um, dedicated to spirituality and religion than any other people that I know of. Um, so, so speaking know, of what people see and how they interpret things, uh, not often people talk about the image of two men embracing each other in the causeway of the tomb of King Unas. It is said to be the only tomb in the cemetery where men are displayed embracing and holding hands. Did you see the image and what was your interpretation of it? Well, yes, but I, but there are other images too. And other places in Saqqara where men are holding hands, where you wonder if they are brothers or lovers. But I think it's a brotherly thing, especially you, you see it fundamentally, you see it with the king embracing and being embraced by the deities. The king has the responsibility of maintaining a relationship with the deities. 
with the forces of nature, the forces of God, and, and on behalf of the people. So that's why you see these, these uh, uh, illustrations where the king or the queen is embraced by the, by the deity as a symbol of I chose you. And by extension, I choose your state. I choose your people. This is where I, the chosen people come from. It comes from this, con this visual concept that we see around in Egypt. And this brotherly thing is something that you find in any kind of spiritual setting, religious settings. When people have found a way that, that, that something is greater than their ego, and that is the, 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 the centrality of divinity that's in nature, that's bigger than all of us, it allows people, it allows people then to, to without ego, to embrace each other, without uh, design to embrace each other. You know, in West Africa, one of the most interesting things about living there, I discovered, is that men walk hand in hand, yeah, talking about things. Yeah, yeah that you know, was that, 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 that's one part. I mean, we had a discussion about the, the tomb now, I'm not going to pronounce the thing because I'm going to get it wrong, but there's an article on portalharlem.net about that and that how it's really difficult for a person in today's time to interpret exactly what those, what that picture means with two guys holding hands and the, the wives and the kids are to the side because you're not there unless they're specifically mentioned their sexual orientation. You can't interpret that, interpret that way. Usually what it comes to me is what you said when you spend time in Africa where men can be openly more affectionate and it means nothing. Whereas in Western no. terms, it means something else. Yeah, but Westerners, Westerners have a lot of hangups, major hangups. I mean, <laughs> how could you not have hangups if you say that, you know, you a man took out his rib and gave birth to a woman? I mean, you got all these fantastic hangups from, from Jump Street. Uh, but you know, the, the thing about brothers in Africa holding hands, when they hold their hands, a discussion of, of influence is going on. It's like, you know, you're walking down the street and you're talking to somebody and you say, hey, you know, let's do this. And you say, oh, no. Then you grab the hand, come on, look, man, look, you know, this is why she, we should do this, you know? Think about this, think about that. Say, okay. That's what's going on. That's what people don't know that I had to learn by living in the culture. The same yeah, thing, you know, yeah, foreigners- and I, and I just find it really, I won't say insulting, but I find it very Eurocentric for somebody black to just automatically assume a certain thing. And it, it lets you know how much we've known of accepted European ways of seeing things and thinking of things. And part of it may have come that we've never learned about these Egyptians and what they did and be able to see that uh, life can be interpreted differently. Can be, and you know, we are social, we live in a society, a European society, and we're socialized by that. We're captive by that, unless you find a way to break out of it. Um, and the first way you know, breaking out of us, you have to realize that European interpretation about African, everything, anything, any European interpretation about Africa is, uh, uh, how do I say it? Is <clears throat> is is wanting? Is uh, is always wrong? Uh, I don't, uh, and I and by learning that, and but it, but when you accept that responsibility, that their interpretation is totally unreliable when it comes to people of color, then the responsibility is on you to try to find out what do you mean and what is reliable. 
that you have to do the, the primary research to find that. And that's a lot of work. And that's a lot of living. And that's what I did by living there and by being it. Uh, I mean, even look at Europeans when they go to Africa. First of all, when Europeans go to Africa, they don't go to look at two-legged animals. They go to look at four-legged animals. So when they even see a young child, a young girl carrying another child on her back, they all assume, oh, poor thing. She's she's pregnant, she got a baby already. They don't deal, they don't understand that in the African household that everybody takes part in raising the kid. And the young kid who is too young to walk around, if the mother's not carrying her, a, a, a sister's carrying her. Even a brother can carry the child. That does not mean that that child, that that young girl who is uh, 12 or 13, that that's her baby. But this just goes to show you what, what and, I, and even in Egyptology, I go to Egyptology meetings because I want to know what they're discovering. I have no problem with them making discoveries, even though they're all tomb robbers. What I have a problem with is their understanding and their uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, analysis of what they think they're looking at, because they are looking at it from European sunglasses. They're not seeing it from African-based context. And that's what I tried to make, one of the things I tried to solve in this book, because I was just totally frustrated. Not only are Egyptologists misguided when they try to look at, when they, because they can't see the African context of the Egypt, of ancient Egyptian culture, but I'm frustrated that each, that knowing Egypt is African, that Egyptologists stop at the border, the Northern border of Sudan. Africanists, stop at the southern border. They may get to the northern border of Sudan, but Africanists give up at Egypt. Egyptologists give up Africa. And here's a bridge, and that bridge is the water. The water that Egypt gets comes out of Africa, comes out of Ethiopia. It is the ribbon of life that connects it. That was it, another, it that was, that was a, another <clears throat> awakening for me. <laughs> It is a ribbon of life that is a migratory route because in, in olden times, the expressway is along your rivers. Yeah, you explained it very well in the book and I love that. Mm. I actually had to look up and see what a cataract was because I kept hearing the word, but I didn't know what it mean. And just so we can move on, the cataracts in short is just the place where the river, there's rocks in the river so boats can't go straight through. Yeah, absolutely. And then We're you know shallow. how it <clears throat> Yeah, before well, before I get to the next question, I did want to mention, in the case someone's listening, I said, no, we're not saying that there isn't there, there could be child abuse. I mean, there is child abuse, of course, in times of Africa, and there are diverse sexualities at times in Africa. We just or there is. We're just saying that you can't interpret it the same way as you would from a Western perspective. Right, right, right. I mean, we humans do a lot of awful things to each other, wherever we're at. Uh, but it, but you know, the context and and the symbols are different. I remember the first time I had a, a Ford Foundation Fellowship to help me with uh, my uh, work in, in, in Ghana, looking at the transition of a culture. And I had to get some, some sponsors to write letters of support, show them my work, talk to them. Margaret Mead was one of my sponsors. And then Elliot Skinner, who was an ambassador, black ambassador to Upavota was a sponsor and he was head of the Department of Anthropology at Columbia. So I go to Elliot's office and show him my work and Elliot looks at me and he says, yeah, and he's lived in Africa, he's West Indian. Elliot looks at me and he said, well, you, you wanna go to Africa uh, because you want to do what? And I tell him, he said, well, you know, you're not African. Well, I, said, oh. I had a black guy tell me that the other day, so 
Well, we only got three more minutes in this segment because we're going to break this in two oh, seconds. But, so, but the important point he made was this. You need to read this and this because when you walk into a, a yard, there are signs that tells you what these people believe and what's going on. And unless you know those signs, you walk right past them and you miss all of that information. So I had to learn the culture. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. You have to learn. Oh, I'm, we're agreeing with that. But sadly, in my opinion, some of will we'll see some of the revelations in your book as being divisive. But aside from revealing documented information, I saw many of your points where you show commonality among belief systems, such as the use of the cows, rams, celestial images, and as religious symbols, and the use of the word amen. And you spoke of that already. You wrote in particular, no matter how amen is pronounced or spelled, these two syllables flow from religion to religion, region to region, and epic to epic. And you already explained that to the audience. So can you just give us a sentence to remind us what you said and then let's move on. Amen is the um, top God, the only God of the, of the ancient Egyptians who were monotheistic. And this is how they saw it. Many distractors, uh, religious distractors want to nullify the ancient Egyptians by saying, well, they were animus, they were pagan, they believed in the sun, they worshiped the sun. It is true. They did. The sun was their major icon. As we have in our religions, the cross is an icon. The sun was their icon. And that they would hold temple early in the morning before the sunrise. They're a nation of farmers. When the sun rose, that was their blessing that they had a new day to live. That was their time to stop worshiping and go work. And then the afternoon before going to sleep, they would then pay honor to the sun. It's like praying. But now what is it that the sun represented to them is the issue. The Europeans and everybody else see the obvious. They don't see the sublime behind it. What the, Ethiop the Egyptians were doing is they felt that the sun were also was is the most powerful force in nature. And they are, they believe in nature. The most, if the sun goes out for a week, the planet will freeze, we will all die. To them, the sun, as powerful as it is, hid something. It hid the resonance of God. So they believe that the sun was merely the window until the resonance of God. And the name of God is amen. Now, one other thing here, they also believe that amen which is the force, the invisible force behind the sun, comes out of the body of an African woman. And that African woman is called Newt. The African woman is the, is the beginning of it all. Not in the Bible where the divine, the divinity of African women was thrown away at large, all of it. She was no longer the mother of the impossible birth. She was no longer the mother of the sun. But Newt is the canopy of heaven is this darkness of space. And Newt is the mother of the sun, which activates existence. And the Egyptians put this into a visual concept. They made an image of a long lean woman leaning over the planet in downward dog position. Her arms are in the west, her feet is on the east. It's the solar poles, not the magnetic poles that they were concerned about. So on the west, her arms were outstretched like a runway. So that when the sun goes down into the Western horizon, it rises up into her mouth and she swallows it. And in her body, the light and the power of the sun 
is regenerated. And because she has holes in the dress of her body, you see the stars twinkling at night. And then in the morning, because her feet are on the eastern horizon, she gives give birth to the sun. And the sun is what animates life. The sun makes everything else possible. So and the, and the, the mother- called, And the sun is labeled amen. And the sun is amen. She gives birth to amen. That is her right for divine place. One of the things I had to look up before we had a discussion, I had to check with one of our, our Jewish readers who's very much into Jewish. She said, yes, they use the word amen too, which I didn't know that. And that was the, that was one of your points is that from religion to religion, region to region, epic to epic, people use the word amen, just like that, amen. And talk to a Muslim, they must tell you the same thing. Right, oh yeah, I knew about the Islam because we spent so much time with the Gambia. So we learned so much there. Uh, but the, lastly, before we break and then go to the next section, next section, I can say that, the words you got from Gordon Parks about submitting images of Black people to white editors, and I will paraphrase it. He said, if you submit 35 images from your heart and one negative one, they would choose the negative one. So never give them a choice. That was very meaningful to me. Is there one that you share with young adults today? Is there one that I sh that particular uh, I shared it in my book on my memoir? Right. Yes, uh, that, 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 was, that when you said that uh, Gordon Park shared with you, and then, well, you, yeah, shared because, with, then you shared it with us, and right, I right. and I remembered it. Is there one oh. that you share with people today that you should share with me now so that I can remember that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, our people have a very rich history. We have a very divine history. We don't owe our divinity to any discovery by, by white people. It's the other way around. And when we become to learn that and know that, we would then act out of our agency. And we will be able to look at these people who call themselves Christians or whatever, who's to me, their mouths are full of scripture, but their hearts are full of hate. And we'll be able to turn away from them with the understanding that we are completely completely uh, righteous. We're going to take a second a break here and we're going to come right back with uh, Chester Higgins for the second half of uh, Port of Problem Talk Radio. We're going to talk about more about uh, the book itself and the thoughts that it provoked in my mind. I'm going to ask those questions. We'll be back in one second. Okay, we're back with Port of Harlem Talk Radio, uh, the second half of, with our discussion with uh, Chester Higgins, the photographer and author of Sacred Nile. This is a two-part series because it has to be a two-part series because there's so much to talk about. So uh, Chester, you, I was reading about the Waka and you could correct me if I'm incorrect in pronouncing the name of the religion. Waka. Waka. Okay, that, that part of the book was very eye-opening because I never heard of them. Uh, I've heard of Christians and Muslims and Jews being in Ethiopia. So can you explain their relationship, that's the Waka, with the cow and the religious oppression they face? Yes, well, the people who believe in nature in, in Ethiopia have been oppressed by the, uh, the religious authorities. Uh, two people have been oppressed by religious authorities in Ethiopia. First, uh, the Waka people, and then the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, uh, by the Christians. Uh, and the Muslims were able to make a, a, a foothold before, and the, and, the, and the Christians, obviously, there's, there's competition between them. And, um, but <clears throat> the Waka people are very similar to 
believe very similar to what the Egyptians believe. They believe in nature. They believe that the presence of God is not something that you can confine within walls of a building. So their ceremonies are outdoors. Their ceremonies are under trees, next to water. They believe that the, um, the, the, uh, the interconnectedness of divinity. So therefore the cow is very important because the cow gives the life-giving fluid and that is milk. Water keeps you alive, but also milk is a necessary thing that's produced by an animal that keeps you alive, the mammals. And that whenever, and, and, and that particular cow image of the mother is replicated in Egypt in Hathor, and it's replicated in the Holy Bible. When you look at any manger scene, there has to be two animals there. One is a cow and one is a lamb. So the, so the symbolism has shifted over, but people didn't know what the symbolism meant. That, you know, if they are animal worshipers, then why these animals show up in, 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 in Christianity? Uh, but the history of them all, all come back out of a, uh, out of the, the belief, people who believe in nature. Waka is, is the name of the sun. They, instead of calling the sun amen, they call it Waka. Okay. And, because they, and because they believe in the balance, they call Newt behind the sun, Fana. So the complete expression is Waka Fana. These are people who believe in Waka Fana. They believe in the male energy of the sun and the female energy of Fana. So the male energy is the activator, which activates existence. And the female energy, Fauna, is the one who gives birth to the activator. Well, that was one of the precious things about <clears throat> having pictures in the book, because I was able to see all of that. But again, the thing that makes the book so precious is seeing the pictures, such as seeing the similarities between the sacred staff of the Romo elders and Toth, uh, the depiction of God by the, uh, who the, who the, Toth is one of the gods, the Egyptian gods, or the or depiction of one of the Egyptian gods. How did you come about knowing the similarities between the staffs of the Romo elders and Toth? Well, <clears throat> I have a good friend who's a historian, Ethiopian historian and linguist, uh, who was a very, uh, a very important resource on this project, uh, Haidu Haptun. And I've known Halu and his family, I guess, since the uh, 70s, when he and his brother Alam lived in, in Harlem and taught at City College. And of the two, his brother Alam was more interested in politics, and Alam was more interested, I mean, and, uh, and Halu was more interested in ancient uh, history. And it was through, one, his connection, and then secondly, through the connection of an Ethiopian anthropologist, uh, uh, Mesker Masagud, who did her uh, PhD on this group because when she was a child, her mother in Bashoftu, she said, we do these strange ceremonies. And Maskerim uh, grew up in Addis and then came and emigrated to the States. But something in her at a certain period of her life made her want to turn back and try to uncover these things that she really didn't understand, but she knew they were important to her grandmother. That research and Heidi's research are, are, the, are the two things that allow me to dig deeply into this Oromo Wakafana religion and see these elements. And then I've been working in Egypt for decades and I begin to then make these connections. 
and see that and then dig in and 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 study them to see if these how far these connections went so it was you know the spirit just sort of i just follow the spirit the spirit just sort of you know pour stuff together when it's time when i can absorb it i'm i'm i don't know why i continue to make pictures of certain things or go to certain places over and over but <clears throat> after a while there's there, there's something my learning my knowledge increase uh, around these things that i'm studying that uh like a puzzle things begin to fall in place because you know you look at the material but you're always interrogating the material I mean, as a as a scholar, you have to constantly interrogate the material. As an artist, you are constantly working hard. Try as an I, I try to find what I call the signature of the spirit left behind, because all of these this this book is about water, but also this book is about stone. Stone is as the medium in which our people left behind messages. Stone is the medium that formed a a, a point of focus where our people invested their spirits over hundreds of years out of one place and doing a particular ceremony is to try to meld their spirits with the universal spirit. Okay, so the Oromo, so, I mean, the Oromo elders then are part of the Waka religion. Yes. Gotcha. And, and, those and those staffs that you see is a staff that means that you have the right to, to adjudicate disputes. Now, as you say, I say taught, your taught is the one who makes the record. He is an angel of God. He makes the record. So he makes the photo, the, the stone made the photograph, but Toth wrote it down. Toth says, this is real. This is what happened. And I'm here to record it. Right. Toth he is, is the God, one that's he's, from ancient, he's the one from ancient Egypt. I guess I want to make it clear to people who don't, who haven't seen the picture yet and who hopefully will see the picture is that you're connecting an ancient Egyptian God depiction with the, with the comet, with the uh, current man. And it's not a god. Egyptians nature symbols. All of these are netarus. Egyptian netarus. It's not god. To say god is 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 a fallacy because that's not what it is. And okay, well, let, me get, let me let me let me get to that question later because I'm gonna let you talk okay. about that in totality. <clears throat> so often the focus is on Egypt instead of the Nile Valley, which then can be more inclusive and include the pyramids in Sudan. Why do you think Sudan is often left out? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, and I think it has to do one with total logistics is because Sudan is much harder to get to, uh, but Egypt, the, sh the shadow of Egypt is sexier and overshadows uh, Nubia because the Nubian monuments are not as, they are in their way, they're impressive but they are um, not as impressive as the Egyptian monuments. So let's talk, let's separate a couple of things out. You have in Nubia twice as many pyramids than you have in Egypt, but they are different. In Egypt, the pyramids will go from anywhere from uh, three stories to 35 stories. In Egypt, the pyramids are always on a 45 degree incline. In Nubia, you, where you have more pyramids, they are number one on 60 degree inclines, and they are no more than 12 stories high. So you have a, you, you, they cast a shorter shadow, so to speak, okay. than the ones of the Egyptians. So I think for people who were coming from the north, 
getting uh, into Egypt, coming to Alexandria, down to Cairo, down to Luxor, down to Aswan, uh, was a very long trip. You know, it took, you know, a, a, a thousand nights to go from there and back. It's a long time. And so for them to continue to go down to Sudan was problematic for two reasons. The main reason were the cataracts. And I have to talk about these cataracts. Cataracts are huge boulders in the river that makes river traffic by boat impossible. You just, it just you can't do it. So this is how they solved the problem. The Egyptians made boats with short planks. And these short planks they put next to each other and tied together by rope and put caulking in between. When they got to a cataract, they had to get all the people off the boat, had to take all the cargo off the boat, had to disassemble the boat, and then walk all of it past the cataracts on land, <clears throat> reassemble the boat, put the, <clears throat> the uh, cargo back on the boat, put the people back on the boat and then continue. Now this took weeks to do. And we, and we know it happened because along these cataracts in Sudan, on the face of huge rocks, you have where people had enough time to chisel, uh, essentially that I am this, I come from this, uh, I'm, I, I am living in the time of this king, and uh, we are here to do this on our passage under somewhere else. These are the first, you know, uh, I don't know what we call it, do it after the war, Leroy Travelogues. is here or something. Travelogues or, you know, I was here. You, <laughs> right. you see these left behind on stones all over the, all over the desert within walking distance of these cataracts where people say, I was here, I was on a mission, I was on this boat during this time to do blah, blah, blah. So fundamentally, people who were looking at Egypt, this was a real, real impediment for them to do work in Sudan. Okay, so let me say another one of your quotes that I tagged. <clears throat> and it was, uh, I realized, this is what you said, quote, I realized the African foundation of religion has all have been obscured by miseducation. I think you spoke to that indirectly, but you want to speak to that directly? Yeah, miseducation on, on a lot of levels. Uh, you, well, you know, if you study um, miseducation because if the, everything is about demonized, demonization saying that your God that you worship is a devil. The gods that you worship, look, they say voodoo is a devil. The Ethiopians even say this about the Oromo people. They worship, you know, trees. Uh, and, and, and I said to them, well, uh, what is a tree made of? Wood. I said, okay, well, what's that cross around your neck? What is that made of? Wood. Oh, it's not that. <laughs> people get nature confused. <laughs> and they, but the whole thing they're trying to do is make you beholden to a God that does not look like you. If your God does not look like you, that God is unreliable. But not only that, if you accept and realize that the issue of heaven was an Egyptian invention, let's take King Tut. King Tut was buried 3,500 years ago on his way to eternity to meet the God of forever. Now, this religion that we worship is something that started, you know, actually, it, brought, it is what brought Europe out of the dark ages. So let's say 1,400. That's a thousand, almost five or 600 years ago. And they want to go to the same place that our people invented. 
that King Tut left 3,500 years before. So I say to all those people, obviously you, you may think our God who looks black is, 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 a, is the worst nightmare you ever had, but it's his kingdom that you are heading to. And, and check this out, you have to join up on a queue. And who is queued up in front of you? All the black people who invented and who accepted the understanding, amen who are on their way to Amen right now. We don't know how many other tombs have not, been dis have not been discovered. We know that there are many, many tombs that have not been accounted for. So just because you intercepted one person on their way to eternity uh, 100 years ago, come November, King Tut, who had been traveling undisturbed for 3,500 years, your trip to heaven whatever you may think that is gonna be, has to queue up behind him and his people. I got your point. Okay, in your book, you also said of Egypt, you are in the place of living, but the dead won't go away. No, when did you come? When, when did you come to that feeling and how? I, it's over time, you know, because I think at first, you know, you, you, you're captured with the reality of it. Oh my God, I'm faced with this. I mean, but then, you know, when you begin to lay, lay back and, um, um, and, and, and accept that, you know, the Egyptians believed they had, they had several beliefs, but they seemed to care more about their, their, uh, their existence in death than they cared about their existence in life. So much so that they took great care to prepare for their what I call in their tombs, their apartments of eternity. They took much care to prepare uh, for their representations of themselves. And these representations of themselves, because it is so humongous. I mean, you have these towers of statues that are eight to 10 stories high that weigh you know, 50 to 60 tons that, you, that will not be moved. Look, the only reason the, 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 the pyramid is still in Egypt is because it was too heavy for the, for the British to steal. Exactly. So, you have, so you have all of these monuments that will not be moved, that stand as beacons. You look at the statues of the, of the Egyptian kings. These kings, to me, if you see them, they're looking, in a, they're looking out on a, on a horizon. They are completely unaware and could care less who's around them. These kings are looking at the waves of time and the waves of time is, is, exists and humans are running around and humans will live and die and these things will continue. Someone said, you know, time, man fears time, but time fears the pyramids because no matter how much time comes, the pyramids are still there. So one of the questions I had that wasn't from the book was about the funerary, funerary chapel. I think they call funerary chapels or funeral, yeah, funeral the, something. Yeah, the, the, the memorial chapels. Yeah, but did they, did they build those as soon as the, did they start building them as soon as the king or queen became into existence or at what point? What legitimized an Egyptian king was that he, the, the first thing he had to do was start preserving the memory of his predecessor. And his, so his power comes to him gradually. And his power is fully invested once he has produced suitable memorials for his, for his uh, predecessor. So that you would have, uh, even though a king may start a temple, 
by uh, Seti, uh, 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 the Seti, you have Seti the first temple was started in Abydos, but he died and it was finished by his son, Ramses. You may have the same thing with uh, uh, Ramses, uh, uh, the uh, memorial temple of Ramses the Great, but it was also finished by his son. This is part of their culture that you oh, do not become but, a full king. If I can recall, and I may be recalling incorrectly, but it might have been King Tut or some other king. They died even before the funerary temple. Funerary temple was was finished, and that temple was a temple where they're going to uh, not cremate his body, but preserve his body. Well, that has happened too. I mean, look at King Tut. I'm asking you that. So that correct that that that, that, that sometimes they will build these temples to preserve the body or to, or to or do the preservation process, but the temple may not be completed by the time the person dies. Well, I haven't heard about that in the temple. I've heard about that with tombs, that because we have to, we've seen tombs that were not completed. When the pharaoh comes to power, the 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 what I call the mortuary industrial complex of ancient Egypt, the first thing that starts happening is that a tomb starts being constructed. And depending on how long the pharaoh lives, determines usually determines how big that tomb is. They just keep digging, the miners keep working. But there have been tombs that we have been in that you see that it was not finished in time for the, to, for the burial. The burial was, was made, but all the other chambers had not been finished. And then in different levels of unfinishedness. Some of it could be is that when you, as a miner, when they cut through the rock, you have jagged rock all around. But on that jagged rock is then where you put plaster. And on top of that plaster is where you begin to make the drawings. And on top of those drawings is where you then make the paintings. So we have seen tombs in different states of preparedness. Those that have been completely prepared, those that have been partially compared, prepared, and those who have been woefully prepared. In our last seven minutes, uh, let me ask, hopefully try to sneak two more questions in. And uh, one of them is where you alluded to, so let's say that's the last. But explain the use of the term uh, before the common era and after the common era? Well, you know, before um, the, uh, the revolution, so to speak, of opposition religion, uh, the, the, if you notice, the Hebrews still keep the date that's pretty close to the Egyptian date, which is near 6,000. If you look at, if you ask them for their date, they would give you that date. But the, uh, the, Catholic Church wanted to uh, to change the calendar because first of all, you know, Egyptian the calendar the calendar we use is an Egyptian calendar. Uh, they wanted to change the dating, and the Egyptian calendar worked on two levels. You had the continuous times uh, line, and then you had the individual timeline of the pharaoh or the king, who was the chief prophet of God in their particular reign. So those two things sort of went together. And that's how we can tell uh, from Egyptian records what time things happened in before Common Era and after uh, and AD after the Common Era. So before Common Era means before the time that the Roman Catholic Church decided to cut time and say now time begins with us. And that time before us <laughs> don't matter. <clears throat> I got you. Makes, makes it clear. Let me go back to the other question before I step back. I just looked it up. It's the uh, funerary temple, the funerary temple of Hapshesu. That's what I meant. Was, it, was, was her like temple, her funeral temple, a mortuary just to preserve, 
just to go through the act of preserving her body as opposed to her final resting place? Well, first of all, her temple exists. It's the most uh, uh, modern looking temple in Egypt. It's a humongous temple. It's on three different levels. Um, she was able to build that temple while she was alive with her architect, uh, 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 I want to, I think it's a cinnamon, a cinnamon, it'll come to me. Um, but where people were interred, they usually, uh, there was always a place where the bodies of the embalmers prepared the bodies for, and that was a 70 day process, you know, 40 days to dry the body out. Uh, like, so it becomes uh, uh, light and then you take all the guts and stuff out so it doesn't rot. And then the, another 30 days after that to, uh, uh, to seal the body with the uh, vitamin and to wrap it and to uh, prepare for it in his sarcophagus. Now, that happens at, at a, always at a, at, a, at a mortuary place, but those mortuary places could be, we don't know where they're at. They could, it makes sense to have them uh, would it be in the in the town proper? Would it be in the cemetery proper? It's not sure, but there's a good chance that it was in the town proper because the procession that would take weeks to get the body from the uh, the area of the living to the area of the dead means that it had to be prepared before it made it trip to the area of the dead. And we see these sleds that people are pulling. That, that the coffins were on. And the land of the living, which is usually on the Eastern bank uh, to the land of the dead on the Western bank, if it's, a, if it's a king, is about 30 miles. That's a long distance. But you gotta remember that we're talking about an area that we call now, Lux now Luxor that had a million people that was called by the, the, uh, the Greeks uh, Thebes and was called by the Egyptians themselves in their language Waset. So <clears throat> in Waset somewhere, they had the, the morticians had to prepare the body before it made it journey, started out on its processional journey, either by boat as it crossed the water or on land as it's passing villages and, and towns as people will come out and, 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 and throw palms and whatever at the, at the procession. And if you see in some, in some of the tombs, especially the tomb of the uh, Vizier Ramosis, you will see this procession and you will see women, lines of women mourning and crying as the caskets are coming by. And you will see lines of men carrying possessions that they would take to the tomb their, their, their tomb of, of eternity to be with them so that they have these things in their later life. Okay, so was her mortuary temple though a temple just for, for them to take care of her body or was it her final resting place? No, mortuary temples are for, for the living to come and offer spiritual uh, <clears throat> obligations. They would have what's called the false doors. The false doors, as I showed you in, this, in the book, which is a stone, piece of stone, and a door chiseled out. And this is where people with mourners will come and offer their flowers or their incense in the name and as you try to invoke and kiss the memory of the person who has died. A mortuary temple is simply that. This is a place where you go mourn the dead and mourn and kiss their memory because you've grown up with them. They have been a, a spiritual father, a mother to you for your whole life and now they're gone. 
And there's a part of you that's empty. It's like a, a loved one from your family. And this is a place that you can go, that the priests have provided for you to go and honor their memory. The very last question before we close this out, um, and you wanted to talk about this earlier. Um, I believe you asked the question, were they gods or netter in the book itself? And you start speaking of it during our talk, meaning uh, nature or representative of divine principles found in all of us. Now is a good time for you to explain that. First of all, I want to say to everybody in listening that the Egyptians only had one God. And whoever tells you they had more than one God is an enemy of the Egyptian theology. Point blank. <clears throat> the Egyptians did not call the many things that you see and that the Europeans like to call gods. They did not call them gods. They were deities of nature, Netaru. NTR, Netaru is nature. All the Egyptians tried to do is say, look, nature is perfect. We are part of nature. We are integrated with nature. Nature in its perfection, the planets don't run into each other. Uh, it gives us balance. You have day and you have night. How do we get in lock sync with that? And we would have, and how do we, if we, and there are so many different parts of nature that how do we appeal to, if we want to appeal to the wind uh, to be nice and peaceful, but not, you know, like a, like a, like a storm, how do we appeal to the water forces? How do we appeal to the forces of plenty? What do we go to if, if I'm a woman and I, and I can't get pregnant? Is there a netaru that I can appeal to? What do we go if, hey, I'm, I'm harder down on my luck and I need help? What netaru do I go appeal to? Do I go and pray to? It's a netaru, it's a force of nature. Now, for those of us who are old and who've been in libraries, <clears throat> in the old days, you had card catalog system. Think of the library as the universe. But in order to access that universe, you know it's there, but you gotta find that particular part. And you go to the card catalog. The card in the catalog is not the, it is not the, the nature that you're looking for. It only represents the nature you're looking for. That is a netaru. The Egyptians believed in one God. You say his name every day without knowing it. And you know you're saying it right. Then that God is amen. Like you said before, uh, Muslims say the amen, Christians say amen, and Jews say amen. 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 And we're going to end it right there. And we want to thank you for your time. And of course, on portofharlem.net, you can read uh, more about the book, The Sacred Nile. And uh, we'll make sure that uh, people understand that The Sacred Nile is available. And the pictures in there are absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Sacrednow.com, Amazon, all of it. <clears throat> yeah. And it's not just that the book, the pictures are wonderful, that they explain a lot of what you're saying. I'm trying to just give you an, an, the ability to hold your legacy in your hand, in your lap, and make it a friend. Yeah. So on that end, we're really going to say amen, and thanks a lot. Take care now. Okay. Thank Good you. Good night. Take care. Good night.